this particular cyclical period we're going through now, now is nowhere near as bad as it was then, but I am reaping the rewards of those, those lessons that I learned and the way I've structured the business in that we're much more robust now going through this particular squeeze point in the cycle than we would have been had I not learned those lessons previously. You are listening to the Property Developer Podcast, your home for tips, ideas, and inspiration to help take your developing to the next level. Now, here's your host, Justin Getty. Hello, and welcome to episode 55 of the show. Thanks for joining me. How are you doing? Well, I hope. I'm doing fine. Getting back into the swing of things after a bit of a summer break and looking forward to the year ahead. Got a great guest coming up on the show today. A developer who learned from her dad and has kept the family business going with her brother. I think you will enjoy the chat we have. On the projects front, it has been quieter than usual with the summer break as many people in the property industry take a holiday and things take a while to ramp back up again. But I've launched a small marketing campaign for the project that I got a permit for a few months back. It's a bit of a canary down the mine where I can test the state of the market and see what kind of feedback we get. In a stroke of good fortune, our campaign got a bit of media exposure from realestate.com and news.com.au due to our focus on using emotional marketing to connect with potential buyers. So it was interesting to get noticed. In the meantime, I am working on getting the pre-sale campaign material sorted out, so things like the sale, contracts, printed collateral and internal renders, and the architects are getting the working drawings underway and engaging consultants. So a busy period in the project. I also produced a short walkthrough video of the site explaining how the scheme is going to look. So check that out if you're interested in seeing how the project is going to work out. I will post a link to the video on the show notes for this episode, or you can see it on the show's Facebook and Insta feeds. On my other project, we have finally wrapped up our response to Council's request for further information and have submitted a very comprehensive submission back to them. So now we wait to see what they say. I think we're in for an interesting year in the property market, as there are a number of factors in play that will impact the sector. The federal election is due this year, and that always creates uncertainty in the market in the weeks before and after. The Banking Royal Commission has also wrapped up, and I think from a mortgage perspective, the banks got off pretty lightly. And I expect to see them relaxing their mortgage assessments ever so slightly. But more importantly, the banking industry can get on with changing and focusing on providing funding to worthy applicants. Hopefully, as the year unfolds, we see some more confidence return to the market. Now, if this is the year you want to become a property developer, then be sure to drop me an email to learn more about the mentoring program that is available to help teach you how to successfully develop property. Email me, Justin, at Property Developer Podcast to find out more. All right, on with the show. Today, I'm speaking with Jennifer Macquarie from the Fountaindale Group. Jennifer has worked in residential property development for more than 25 years after learning the business from her property developer father. She and her brother have expanded the family business and have so far completed more than 80 projects. Jennifer has tertiary qualifications in marketing and finance and is also a licensed real estate agent heading up the group's sales team. She certainly has an interesting story to tell and I'm sure you will pick up lots of gold nuggets from her experience so far. In this conversation, we cover the importance of discovering niche markets, what it's like working in a family business, women in property development, 
and why the structure of a project makes such a big impact on its success. Keep an ear out for a growing market that Jennifer and me both feel is underserviced. I started off by asking Jennifer what food she would eat until she was sick, and coming from a dairy farming background, I shouldn't have been surprised with her answer. Cheese. Cheese and wine. Ah, is that two? Do they go together? <laughs> yeah, they have to go together, I think. <laughs> is there one and that it's... leads you to being sick? Uh, well, I don't know. I suppose um, I have teenagers and I've definitely seen the alcohol take them, um, make them sick recently. But um, otherwise, no, I try not to get uh, drink too much wine, but um, definitely cheese, if you have too much of the creamy stuff, can make you sick, but... Yeah, I find I, I think it would be pretty hard to turn myself off cheese. There's so many beautiful ones out there. But yeah. have you got a particular favourite? Um, oh gosh, I love all of them. I've got a very good um, goat cheese provider and farmer right who lives right near us. So that's a that's a favourite. Oh, that's always nice. The the low food miles. That's very environmentally conscientious of you. Yep, and it's very fresh as well. Uh, but then again, I can have some very high food mild cheese and happily eat a French breeze. <laughs> it's all about balance. <laughs> well, you've already touched on that you live in a rural area and I think that uh, you've grown up on a dairy farm or on a farm. Can you give us a bit of a background about who you are and how you got into property development? Yes, yeah, so we live um, – well, I've, I've grown up in the area I'm still in um, – and family lived there for six generations, so it's been a very long time. Um, so very welded to the local area, and it's um, a regional area south of Sydney, south of Wollongong, if, if people know that area. Um, a little town called Jamboree is where I grew up, and um, it started off, you know, generations ago as a cedar growing area or cedar cutting, and then moved into a dairy farming area. Um, it's very beautiful and right near the coast, um, and I grew up on the family dairy farm and my father started slowly to get into property development. Um, he was always interested in properties, very entrepreneurial, and started trading a few rural properties. And then in the 70s, the economics of dairy farming changed and it became very challenging to make a living. So he found that he was making more money cutting off a concessional lot here and there and, and buying and selling rural properties. And he started to focus his activities more in that area and then you know, within the next five years he'd sold out of the dairy farm and was doing that um, full time. So I, I kind of grew up with development and you know it started with walking the paddocks with my father and he'd take always take us to new properties and um, I, I remember always looking in real estate agents windows whenever we traveled anywhere he was always interested in what was what the opportunities were wherever we went. Um, so yes, I was familiar with development from a very young age and also just with running businesses because, you know, being in, on a dairy farm, the business tends to be run from home and I grew up very interested in that. I was always, um, you know, a smart kid who was, um, quite good at numbers and, and my dad would always give me the opportunity to sit next to him. And I remember from age about 10, I'd sit next to him every month and do the accounts with him because it's not the part of the business he loved or was good at. He was a real entrepreneur, but he had to do the back-end stuff himself. He didn't like it. But he recognised that I had an interest in capability and it kept him company and 
so he just let me sit there and write his checks out for him and he'd go through all the invoices with me and really so from a very young age I've been involved in business and we worked really well together so as I grew up I began to in my um, late teens and, and university years I did some more work experience both in his business and in um, real estate firms that he connected me into and so when I left uni he wanted me to come straight into the family business so that's where it all began um, and you know so once I was in the business being a fairly small family business he and he recognized my capabilities and interests so he just let me or gave me experience across any sector that, of the business that I wanted so that that's a wonderful opportunity and, and the confidence he had in me was fantastic and you know so even though my degree first degree was in marketing and finance but he let, allowed me to get into project management and areas that I, you know, you may not naturally get into if without the um, the relevant qualifications or, you know, if it wasn't a family business, perhaps I wouldn't have been able to do that. But it, it just gave me the view across the whole business and experience in every aspect of it. Um, and so, later, what, sorry to interrupt. And and what kind of projects were they, or the, were you doing, or the family business was doing at the time? Yeah. And what kind of stuff was your dad doing in the lead up to that? Is it was it land subdivision? Yeah, he was doing a lot of. Um, he was quite diverse um, in what he was doing, and I think that to some extent is a reflection of being in a rural area that you can't necessarily specialise. Um, you have to really put your hand into all sorts of things to have the volume of, of work that you need. So he was doing rural subdivisions. Um, and he was doing – he did some light industrial subdivisions at, at one time. He actually owned and built nursing homes for a while. So he was – yeah, it was very diverse. Um, and then we moved more into some unit developments. We did some quite large unit developments in Wollongong because that, then the, by then the business had moved into Wollongong, which is the, um, the largest regional city in the area. And so – yeah, it was it was very diverse in its um, in its focus. So I guess there wasn't a particular focus other than you know within a territory, he was prepared to look at anything that was going, and with you know wherever the market and the cycles were, um, that's where he went. Okay, and so what what were you working on when you were pretty fresh out of uni? You're still at uni. I was doing a lot of all the marketing um, for the projects because that was my background, and but I was then moved into a bit more of um, subdivision management. And, um, yeah, subdivisions. And, and But then I was given the opportunity to um, project manage an eight-storey, 60-unit development, which I had to kind of get in some expertise to help me because <laughs> I, um, I certainly didn't have any expertise in, in building and structures and, and that kind of thing. But, you know, I, I understood I mean, project management's all about time management and budgets, really. Um, so then you can buy in the expertise with consultants in um, in the various areas that you need. So um, I think I had a natural ability in in the budgeting, budgeting and planning and um, and time management side, but it was just the the particular um, skills in construction and engineering and all of that side of it. That that definitely wasn't my area of expertise, but. Yeah, you just have um, have good people to support you. And what was that project? 
It was called City Beach in Wollongong and it was right um, next to the golf course and near the beach and um, it was a Sydney water property, owned property for many, many years and they just needed to want to sell it. So it was yeah, a really good opportunity and one of the first multi-storey units in that area. So it went very well but um, the traditionally along the beachfront in Wollongong, and this probably happened in any town, um, they were luxury units being built. Three-bedroom luxury had been built in, in previous years. Um, and because we had a rather large project, we decided to be innovative and you know, do some smaller product. But, you know, we did, uh, it really pushed the boundaries of um, the valuers and the finance people and the real estate agents because they were used to the really good quality um, locations having high-end luxury units and then the cheap stuff and the smaller stuff is in the worst locations. Um, but by then, you know, we had a lot of more professionals in town and, and young people who wanted a good location but didn't either, either didn't need or didn't want a large property because they were, you know, a single or a couple. So um, we started to we, – we proposed to do a mix of one, two and three bedroom units in those locations and it was a little bit challenging to get through at the time finance-wise because – you know, the real estate agents and valuers are all saying, well, what's been done here in the past is three-bedroom, just do what's worked before, whereas I've always tended to look where the gaps in the market are and what's not being provided and, you know, my inclination is not to just deliver what everyone else is delivering because you're going head-to-head on the same thing. But um, when you're offering a new product in an area, um, you know, there's often a, a market that's not satisfied and how did you how did you determine that that gap existed, Jennifer? Well, I guess I was one of the typical um, or potential buyers, being a young professional myself, um, and mixed in those circles. And you know, the, the, also the price of the three bedroom luxury units was really going up and beyond the reach of so many people. And I thought, well, people love the location; they're going to want to still buy there, but at an affordable, at a more affordable price point. Uh, it just made sense to me that, you know, the location was a no-brainer and, you know, why not tap into certain markets that have um, or segments that have a lower budget but really still want that location and p- potentially have um, the opportunity as a professional to be increasing their income over time. And um, so that's where we went. And lo and behold, the smallest product was the first to sell because no one else was offering it. Um, and the three-bedroom units, which went head-to-head with every other developer in town, were slower to sell because people had more choice. And that really was a um, reinforcing lesson to me. To And ever since, we've always looked for those niche markets. Mm-hmm. And they can be – it can be a risky strategy in a way because what if you get it wrong? But if you really, you know, look into it and know your market well – you get it right. And when you were saying you were doing the marketing, what, is, what, what does that actually mean you were doing? Uh, well, putting the um, marketing campaigns together project, and, and working with advertising agencies to do marketing campaigns, television ads and all of those things. Um, at that time, um, I didn't have a real estate license. I do now. Um, I was using local real estate agents to do the selling um on all of our projects and but over time i 
depending on, I guess, where in the region that we were working, because there's five local government areas that we work within and it's quite spread out. Um, but we had once we had a, a much larger project where we based our office, I opened a project marketing office, got my real estate licence and was doing it, um, actually doing the selling as well. And I found that um, general real estate agents who sell houses, you know, secondhand houses up and down the street or whatever, it's not, they don't necessarily have project marketing skills and expertise. Some do, some have that experience and specialise in that now. But at the time, and particularly in a regional area, you didn't have project marketing specialists who were, you know, just real estate agents. So that's why I, I decided, I thought I could do it better myself and <laughs> I did. <laughs> and so what was the, the skill gap that you felt the existing agents who were selling the the existing stock didn't have that you were looking for in people who could sell off the plan? Mm. Well, to some extent it was a conflict of interest in a way because um, real estate agents are incentivised by commission um, and if someone, if my marketing budget as a developer was sending people into their real estate office at that time, in that moment they have a choice to direct them to my project make a sale and a commission that will be earned in 12, 18 months' time, or they can direct that person to the unit, established unit down the street and get their commission in six weeks or eight weeks or whenever that sale is, you know, completed and the transaction settles. So that was one of my concerns is that conflict of interest and was my marketing budget, and which was sending people into their office, um, being then directed in the correct way. Um, so I felt that if with a specialist project marketing office of my own, there was no conflict. All, that, all my salespeople could sell was my own product. Um, but then there, particularly with land subdivisions, when you're selling land off the plan, there is a lot of knowledge that um, you develop, build up over time about, um, you know, services and, and slope on land and, and house and land packages with builders and all of that kind of stuff that if you're a specialist project marketer in land, it's it's a very different knowledge base than a real estate agent who's selling established homes. So you've got to be able to inform people and understand yourself about, um, you know, the building process and, and how builders work with land and what the impact of of slope and geotech is and, and the process of land subdivision and the time it takes and all of that stuff that you've got to be able to convey in an understandable way to an uninitiated land buyer. Yes, yep, that's true. Actually, we might, we might come back to your to the project marketing side of things because I think <laughs> there's a lot to cover there, but could you just give us a bit of an overview of the projects uh, that you've completed over the years? Mm. Yeah, and it has changed over time um, because, uh, as we mentioned before, we started in rural subdivisions and the uh, the planning framework has changed and, and now rural subdivisions are quite out of favour and considered really not very good for the, you know, environmentally as well because they, you know, take up a lot of um, rural land and they're very car dependent and so for various reasons they've gone out of favour in the planning sector and, and so... Our business has had to shift with both our product with both demographics and and what's 
permissible under the planning structures. So we're no longer doing rural subdivisions. I don't think many people are. Um, and we've so we moved kind of more into edge of town um, conventional development. We did a lot of that uh, land subdivision for a long time. Um, you know, in one particular town where we have been based, we did a couple of thousand blocks and really doubled the size of that town. And just typical, what is now typically called sprawl subdivision, which is not necessarily looked at favourably. And, and we made that realisation ourselves that, you know, just marching over hill with more blocks of land, standard conventional blocks is really not the best um, planning outcome and certainly not the best environmental outcome. So for a while we, um, you know, we started to look into more compact township type developments and, and more diverse small lot product and so you know, like any business in, in any industry, we've, we've evolved over time and um, become innovative in what we do. So um, we are still doing a lot of subdivisions, um, but I guess what's um, different about our business is we do a lot of joint ventures and that's where, we're, where our um, business is focused. And so a lot of landowners come to us and ask us to um, help them develop their land. They have the land asset that's maybe has been rezoned, but they're not developers, but they want to participate in the development profit rather than just selling for, um, you know, the base land value. And so what, what kind of, what do those projects look like? Are they townhouses, 100 townhouses, 50 townhouses? Um, it's mainly land subdivision because it's a, you know, a farmer on the edge of town whose land has been rezoned. Um, and, and we find that, um, we don't we don't do a lot of joint ventures with townhouses, although we are we do have one at the moment. Occasionally, someone comes along with one of those. But it, it yeah it tends to be a large land holding on the edge of town that has been um, a farm, often been in the family for a long period of time, and it's their major asset. And they sometimes go through the process of of trying to sell, and they um, realise that what they're going to achieve financially out of just selling is not as attractive as staying in there. So, um, yeah, mainly subdivisions. And, and how do they find you? Word of mouth. Um, and the farming community is um, a small and well-connected community <laughs> and also the fact that we used to be farmers as well and, and my father still has a very good network there. So, um, yeah, they often f just find us through word of mouth, start talking around, say, you know, to people about what they might want to do or um, – have other families who've done the same thing so yeah it's a lot about reputation and um, those rural connections and how do those conversations go Jennifer oh, look, what are the concerns uh, they have what questions are they interested in it's it's a, it's all about trust um, you know they're putting their biggest or oh, most valuable family asset into our hands and um, so our a lot of it is about um, trust and reputation and, and getting um, previous joint venture partners, um, putting them in touch with those people so that they can understand the process that they went through and that, you know, they did well at it at the end of it and it was, wasn't a difficult process. I mean, look, any development's difficult, but it's just about um, us guiding them through it and, and the relationship that we have because you form a very close relationship with these families over a few years going through that process and they, and so what we try to do is um, keep them involved and, and make them comfortable that they're going to be 
an equal part of the decision-making process. So people don't want you to take their asset and go away and they're kind of blind to the process and, and then come back with a check at the end. They want to, You really need to be open and transparent and ensure that they're part of the, um, the development all the way through and that your reporting's really good. And it's as much as we have, it's our family working with their family and, and that's a really good synergy and I find that, that the fact that we're a family business is very attractive to people and the fact that we're a farming family, they feel that, that um, connection and, and shared shared background and experience. But at the same time, you need to be very professional in the way that um, you conduct the development and the reporting to them and you know respect them as, um, even though they don't have development experience, They've got business experience and, and there's often family members who come in like who their children have married or whatever. They may have professional expertise in some field or other and, you know, we take the approach that whoever comes to the table has got something to contribute and it's very collaborative and we um, there's no adversarial um, nature to our joint ventures because it's just too hard. Development's hard enough as it is. It's all got to work collaboratively and um, respectfully. So when you say it's a family business, who's mm -hmm. still involved or who is involved? So my um, father started the, his business way back in the 70s and, and that's the one I became involved in. And, and then more recently, or when I say recently, it's probably not recent now, it's probably about 15 years, my brother became involved and he's an engineer, although a mechanical engineer, not civil, but he's he came in um, and took over the um, mainly the planning and construction side of the business. Um, but gradually, about 10 years ago, my father wound down his business and my brother and I started our own development business. So that's where we are now. My father still comes in and contributes and he's got still got his networks and um, loves to do the, the front end side of things and make those initial contacts and connections and, and um, his, his entrepreneurial skills are still very valued couple of days a week but um, my brother and I are, are running the business together now and you know we, we've got a really complementary skill set uh, me with the finance and the marketing and, and sales side and my brother with his engineering and project management side so we run the business together and you know it's a real uh, anyone anyone who runs a family business will know this that you know having that same culture as you grow up we kind of almost know how each other thinks and we're that we work really well together and you can make quick decisions and sit down and, you know, be quite frank and open with each other. And, and <laughs> I'm sure there's some very direct conversations <laughs> around the table. I have heard of many families who say there's no way I could work with my brother or my father or whatever, but, you know, you just have to, I guess we grew up being taught to be very respectful of each other and, um, and we didn't ever fight that much. So, and that's carried on. So it, it works really well. And speaking of your dad, what lessons do you reckon you learnt, the key lessons you learnt from him from a developing perspective that you've carried with you? I've learnt some to carry on with and some and some of his um, characteristics not to carry on with. Yes, of course. Well, um, maybe you can touch on those as well. Yeah. So um, he's, one thing I've, um, I've learnt from him is he's always had a very good social conscience and he did a lot of um, work in... Um, local government. He he was um, a councillor in Kaima Council for many years and mayor as well. So he he always had a philosophy, and this went way back in our family, being you know such long term um, 
I guess, uh, locals in a, a very small community is that you have to contribute to your community. And, and I think I learned from him that as much as you put in, you get out. Um, and all of the experience that he had volunteering, I suppose you call it in local government as a councillor and a mayor, it gained him so much knowledge of the planning system and, and development. And so no matter, he gave so much of his time, but he gained a huge knowledge that then he's fed back into his business. So, um, and we've continued with that um, philosophy in, in that giving giving of your time and expertise is um, is really important back into your community and, and into the development sector and um, not-for-profits and you gain that back um, in, in various ways. Um, he's always been very entrepreneurial and prepared to um, take the leading edge in in markets, um, probably sometimes too far. You know, he's a bit of a risk taker, which a lot of developers are. Um, and my brother and I do temper that a little bit. You know, I, I feel like sometimes I've got the reins on a runaway bull. <laughs> so, and, and it's been a really good balance in, in, in to, to our business to have kind of me there doing that to say, well, and Ellie, you know, perhaps don't run down too quickly down that route because he's, you know, he has had um, as much um, and not as much. He's had a lot of success in, in testing new markets and taking risks and that. But there's there's also been the ones that haven't been haven't gone as well or, or for whatever reason he's not structured it right financially or whatever. So um, he's you know he's taught me so much and you know, he's he's still teaching me a lot. Okay, and then what about your and your brother brings the engineering side of things yeah. to the picture. Mm, he does, and um, he, he's also learnt a lot from my father, particularly on the community collaboration side of things. And I think um, development can be quite challenging in in that you are bringing change to a local community. There can be a lot of objection, and the more you can interact and, and, and interact with people and kind of talk them through that change the better but um you know we've we've had some very confrontational um objections to our projects like any developer has and um you just have to calmly deal with that and listen to that and and be prepared to stand up in front of sometimes an aggressive small group of people who doesn't like what you're proposing um and that's a real skill that my brother has as well he's developed that over time and um yeah so it's a combination of his engineering and project management skills and then that upfront planning getting things through the planning system um through the council systems as well so um, we do have another um other project managers and the nuts and bolts of project management is what is the skills that you can easily buy in and the expertise you can buy in um but it's really that trying getting the projects through um, and negotiating and, and getting past the roadblocks in planning and design that uh, my brother really adds value to the business. And what about the name of the company, Fountaindale Group? Is there some significance to that? Yes, the Fountaindale Creek ran through our family farm. So that's, that's been, I guess, in the family for six generations as well, that name. Um, so in our little town of Jamboree, so we we definitely drew it on, um, drew from the family heritage there. Oh, that's nice. 
And then you mentioned that you did a marketing and a finance degree. Do you think having Mm -hmm. that finance background is also quite beneficial in terms of structuring deals or doing feasibilities? Absolutely. I mean, my brother does most of the feasibilities now, but it's really about, I mean, once you've got your finance structured right, that's a huge tick in the progress of your project. Um, And if you don't get that right, it it adds significant risk to the project and and it questions the viability um, altogether. So, yeah, I think that um, my MBA was in in finance and it's been a hugely valuable part of my skill set. And I think that that's getting even more challenging and has become more challenging over time. And, you know, there's different scales of developers. Uh, You know, you've got the big publicly listed development companies who fund a lot of or get a lot of their capital through shareholder um, investment. They operate their finances and have a totally different way of um, or or list of challenges, I suppose, than we do. But being a smaller regional and family-based company, um, capital is always constrained in that you know you need a lot of capital to run a development business um, and we've learned over time to structure ours quite conservatively in that we either um, use the asset of the joint venture partner so a farmer might have had a rezoning and they bring their land asset into the project without debt that's a huge step up in the first place to be able to have a um, have the land asset unencumbered and then you can relatively easily borrow against that for um, borrow the construction costs, assuming you've got the pre-sales to back that up. Um, another way we bring capital in is um, sometimes the landowner doesn't want to stay in the development. We've got some investors that follow us around and um, they bring their capital in and replace the landowner and buy the land and then we go forward as usual with the land, new landowner as our joint venture partner. So it's really important to us to keep that um, initial debt down or, or at zero and then um, once you've got a DA development consent, it's much easier to borrow um, for the development costs. And we've learned that over time because there were we've had projects over time where we, we borrowed much more to buy land um, and then had to borrow construction costs as well. And then you hit it, – it's fine when times are good – but then you hit something like the GFC, which we learned a lot out of, and a lot of developers didn't survive that. And, you know, that's where a poorly structured or overgeared project can pull the rug out from under you. And so have you had to go for any finance or had any discussions with lenders in the last couple of months? Because I know things have tightened up a bit in the credit mm-hmm. market. I don't know whether you've had any experience or advice for yeah. developers listening out there. I'm actually just about to settle a loan on Monday uh, next week. So um, a loan that we've we've, um, we've had to put together over the last few months. So um, fortunately, in that case, um, we well we had that same circumstance where the the land is um, debt free and we're about to go into construction, and so we had to get a construction loan. Um, it's further down the coast in a coastal um, coastal town called Mollymook, and we find that certain lenders won't go out of metro areas. So and immediately where there's less opportunity for us to um, or less a smaller pool of lenders that we can draw from. So that's, I guess, a, an initial challenge that metro developers don't face is that, you know, we've got a smaller pool to draw from. 
Um, and then sometimes um, the, the valuers that value the site have concerns about regional areas, but fortunately in this case we're using a regional or the lender's using a regional valuer. Um, we had enough pre-sales to um, cover the debt. That's another tick on the lender's side. As long as you've you know, covered their exposure 100% with pre-sales, you're right. And fortunately, we got those last year before the, um, the market really tightened up and, and um, so we had that risk covered. So you know, in this, on this occasion... It, it seems okay. I've, I've, we've got the um, we've got the loan that we need to, but I know that there's a lot out, a lot of projects out there that are having difficulty. I do have another small townhouse project that we've just put on ice for now because finance for that one is going to be more challenging. So you've really just got to, I guess, adapt to the the current circumstance where you can. Yeah, well, I was going to ask if you'd noticed the market softening, which seems that you have, and what, yeah. are, you, what are you doing in response? Well, it, it's softening. It has softened, definitely. Um, the coastal one I was talking about, um, perhaps not quite as much there because there, it's in a market where there hasn't been land offered for a while and it's not that far from the beach. So it's certainly slowed, but it's not um, stopped completely, whereas the other one, other small one I just mentioned, the 15 townhouse development it's, it's more in a suburban area and there's a lot of others out there and that's definitely constrained and so that project hadn't we've got a da but hasn't started so construction hasn't started so we're in a position where we can just press pause on that one for now um, and in these kind of markets you just have to be able to make those decisions and not always an easy decision because we've got a joint venture partner who's you know, really wanted to get that project going and get their capital out of it. But, you know, we've just had to advise them, look, for now it's not going to – it could do more damage to start it than um, than to just pause it at the moment. So, yeah, um, they're the uh, – that's the only project I'm really – that is really vulnerable to the market at the moment um, that I've got. Fortunately, I'm really glad I'm not in a position where I've got a project under construction that really needs sales to – keep it going um, and that's probably more good luck than good management because you often don't know you, you can't predict the timing of your project particularly while there's a planning process to go through and that can take longer than you expected and you may tip yourself out into a, a different part of the cycle than you thought you would be in yes i understand exactly what you mean of facing that issue at the moment i've had a project going through planning that we thought would be well through construction approaching completion now but because of a delay in planning it's pushed everything out and then the market has changed mm. in that time yep so yes it's hard to get it exactly right yeah so the other thing i'm doing um now that i wasn't doing a year or so ago with my projects is i'm actually spending more on marketing um i haven't done that had to do that a lot in the last few years um, projects would, I wouldn't say sell themselves, but, you know, I didn't have to spend as much or put as much effort and creativity into marketing, but suddenly I'm, I'm doing that for that coastal project. I'm doing a television commercial and, um, so, which is kind of, I'm pulling out all my old marketing skills. Yes, I was thinking <laughs> that. <laughs> Tell us, yeah, talk us through what the kind of activities that you're doing. I'm very interested to hear. So I do a lot of, um, online marketing. 
Um, so each project has its own website and um, Facebook uh, profile or Facebook page. And I just find Facebook is the most effective marketing, cost-effective, and, um, and and generates the greatest volume of responses. And I don't know whether that's because I'm working in in defined regional areas. Um, that yeah, you can spend a lot less on Facebook than on say uh, print print media. And, and so, sorry, are you running those campaigns or do you outsource that? No, I run them. Okay, I've had to I've had to teach myself about social media, and I probably have still have a lot more to learn. But I kind of teach it teach myself as I go. Um, so yeah, we're running them in house and um, can. And because it, it actually comes to my phone, I can. Oh, I've got another admin not there, but I can. I can see all the time what's coming through, and it's social media is always a double-edged sword as well. Because um, you know, for this one down the coast, we've had the Facebook page there and a lot of positive response. But as soon as we got in there and started clearing the land, neighbours get on the site and write negative things, and you know, you're just exposed to that as well. So you have to be quite responsive in in being able to manage and monitor comments on there and, so and how, do, how do you respond to that when you get that negativity well sometimes you just have to um hide the comments and, and not respond because you get into an argument and that's never winnable because someone who's grieving over trees being cut down behind them you know you're never going to be able to satisfy them and you know other people can get in there and say well that's just progress or you know, you're, there were once trees on the block that you live on now and that was once a rural area, but none of those arguments really um, are very effective for someone who just hates seeing trees cut down around them, you know. So some, sometimes it's best just to block the comment and not respond and otherwise you end up with a, a bit of a storm on your social media page. Mm. And uh, I think we'd had a previous discussion that you tend to target female users on Facebook. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. yeah, I find that, uh, and I've learned this over time and, and through practice, that um, women are far more responsive on Facebook than men, or far more active. Um, and you know, for you can pick your target um, audience, and I would do that by um, location and age or whatever else, but. Uh, and just not be specific on gender, but then I would, then over time I gradually found that women are more um, interactive and, and would comment more on Facebook and, you know, just my general knowledge also and experience in real estate is that women often make their final decision or maybe maybe they make the initial decision about, you know, what to look at, um, but they also often make the final decision after a couple has looked at various options. So, yeah, I, I find my, my spend is more effective if I cut the blokes out completely. <laughs> I'm not going to make any comment on that comment, Jennifer. <laughs> because the women then you know are more interactive and talk about it, then they'll talk to their partner, and that's how their partner finds out about it. But you know, I think that um, it's well known that women tend to be more a, a greater proportion of Facebook users. So. Yeah, so yeah. I do. I do agree. I do think, generally speaking, that females play a very important role in the decision-making process, particularly when it comes to larger purchases, but particularly a property. I think mm. if there's a male and female involved in the decision-making, I do think 
more often than not, it's the woman that has the, the, the final say on whether that goes ahead. Yeah. And, you know, the, the man might be the one who's asking all the questions or whatever, but, and, and kind of, if you take that at face value, you might think he's making the decision, but in the end, you're right, it's her. Yes, I'm sure my wife lets me think that I'm making the decisions most of the time. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, I think we've had a, another conversation where you had mentioned, uh, had, had you developed a product aimed for women who are coming out of um, relationships or there was a particular type of product that you'd developed over time or that you saw a gap in the market and you produce something for it is, is that correct yeah. yeah that's correct um and as i mentioned before we do a lot of greenfield subdivisions and that product tends to be a certain size lot and family homes on there um but we and and then traditionally units and smaller product has been in more uh, town center and urban areas and cities but i was finding that you know in our new development areas that there is a lot of women particularly um single older women who are coming out of a divorce who, you know, don't want to live a long way from their children and grandchildren. Um, and we had a new um, project that we were developing called Talambar Village that we were able to, with the help of council, get a particular DCP uh, or development control plan um, approved that enabled a lot more diverse range of lot sizes down to 250 square metre lots. And we had our own uh, design controls on there. And so even on some of those smaller lots, we would put a home at the front and a garage at the back off a rear lane, a triple garage. The, the double garage belongs to the house at the front. The single garage next to it um, belongs to the apartment that sits on top across the three garages. And so it was effectively a duplex on each of those sites, but one big home and one apartment out the back. Um, and those little apartments sold all day long they're my most popular product um, in a greenfield subdivision once again because everyone else around me every other developer is doing standard lots and standard house and land packages and here i had a small affordable new product in amongst that and selling mainly to um, single older women but also appealing to first home buyers because as affordability became more and more of an issue um, they couldn't afford to step straight into a three or four bedroom home and these little apartments suited them as well. A young professional couple or a working couple didn't have kids. Um, it was quite okay for them to step into a very small new product because they're out all day working and they come home and they don't really want to be looking after a larger property or, you know, perhaps they would if they had the money to, to do it, they would still prefer to buy a larger one. But this was a very acceptable and popular way for them to get into the market. Um, and you know, but particularly for those divorced older women, they've come from. When I say older, I'm not talking really old. I'm talking, you know, the kid empty nester age. Um, perhaps the kids have left home and the relationships split, and they've they've had a reasonably um, good middle class kind of standard of life uh, living. And um, but you know, suddenly get to this position where their family asset is split, and both of those people out of that relationship have to buy their own home and they have this this woman perhaps may not have had a, a long-term professional career and and doesn't at that end of her working life doesn't have borrowing capacity 
um, and suddenly finds herself in a very difficult position of always owning her own home and suddenly, well, can she afford one at all and will she be renting for the rest of her life? And um, it's, it's a really challenging circumstance that women are often finding themselves in. And so they'd come to our office and say, what, what have you got? Because Greenfields areas tend to be more affordable, but then they didn't have small product for them. And to come to us and discover that there was this lovely, bright, small one-bedroom unit available, and it wasn't something horrible and old. It was fresh and new, and it was exactly the size that would suit them. And, you know, I've had women crying on my shoulder in my office in relief that there is something for them that is not, you know, that it's kind of the quality is of the standard they're used to. It's just a lot smaller. And so that, you know, I've, I've really, having seen that challenge that people are going through, it's just driven me to want to produce more of that. And it's not easy to do. Um, you know, we were able to do it in that one project because we had our own we wrote the DCP with the support of council and they adopted it and it was quite different. We didn't have floor space ratios, which is quite unusual. We, um, we had, you know, footprints and, and height limits, but we didn't have floor space ratios, which meant on a small block we could do um, a home and an apartment and go beyond what the average floor space ratio for the area was. Um, so, and we had rear lanes and in New South Wales, at least, there's not a lot of projects with rear lanes. So we were able to put those in. And so the urban design is very important and then the DCP requirements are very important to enable you to do those things. But um, in most council areas, you can't do it. Um, so part of my role, I'm, I'm quite active in the property council and um, industry groups like that. They're really trying to um, ask councils or push councils to focus on affordable housing and the provision of more diverse housing choices. And But to do that, they need to change their DCPs. Um, and, you know, I think as a society, we need to recognise the challenges people go through and provide, enable housing to be provided for their needs. And there's a big gap there and we're not doing it yet. And so do you think, I mean, you had a project team that was doing the selling was that were you were you doing that or do you have a team yeah we have a small team um but for me i make sure that i'm in the sales office at least one day a week um i'm i really find that valuable as a developer to keep in touch with changes in the market um where price points are changing where demographics and are changing and um, it just enables me to make decisions about what I'm developing in a very timely manner. And if you think about that as me as a decision maker, talking to the market every week, right, directly to people, not being filtered or not having to make my decisions based on um, statistics and demographics that are fed up to me by what, whoever, compared to a really big developer who might have, you know, six layers between the decision maker and the people coming into the sales office. I think that um, it enables us to be extremely responsive um, to market changes in the way we develop our product, but also the way we're marketing and communicating with those people as well. Okay. And then circling back to the marketing activities that you're doing in this changing mm -hmm. market, so you've Facebook, TV commercials, Who's, you get an external agency to do the commercials or are you rolling around with your... <laughs> iPhone no. and 
<laughs> no, I haven't got into that yet. I'm, I certainly don't have the expertise there. So I, um, yeah, I've got a good advertising agency that puts the TV commercials together. But it's interesting to see how that has changed over time as well, um, because I remember years ago or 15 years ago doing a TV commercial and having, you know, the talent come in and the families, who, you know, the, the actors or whatever. And um, it was a big production and it was very costly to produce a really good television ad. Luckily, I was in a regional market, so regional um, media is cheaper. Um, so often Sydney developers can't afford Sydney television, but in regional areas, the airtime is cheaper. So that made it easy uh, or more affordable. But um, now a television commercial can be put together very cost-effectively. I think this one only cost me about $10,000 in production compared to, you know, could have been closer to 100000 once years ago. So um, a lot of it's, um, uh, what are they called, stock footage. Yep. You can send a drone up and get some footage through that way and pull it all together. It looks fantastic. But, um, yeah, it's, it's much more cost-effective to produce now. And what are the other, well, yeah, I mean, you've basically with your iPhone these days or your smartphone, you can produce mm -hmm. broadcast quality commercials that would have cost $100,000 15, 20 years ago. It's pretty amazing. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's really good and accessible. And I guess with um, the internet and Facebook and those kind of media avenues, you no longer have to necessarily buy um, primetime television which is very expensive you can use those other avenues to run your video and what other marketing tactics are you employing well on our subdivisions we always use the project home builders as a an avenue um and so keeping those relationships going is really important because they they're a great source of referral um but yeah it's, it's mainly social media and um a little bit of press advertising but not a lot that's kind of fading out um, and then, you know, obviously, the the online listings as well. Although I find that the real estate platforms, realestate.com and those um, kind of platforms are, I know a lot of developers spend money highlighting and, and promoting their projects through that source, and it is very effective, but it's becoming very expensive. Mm, yes, it is. So that's why I'm erring towards um, Facebook and social media. Yeah, well, I don't know what it's like where you are, but in Melbourne, you're looking, depending on which suburb you're in, I mean, it's you're talking thousands of dollars for an online listing. Yes. Which is right. sort of getting into the realms of the absurd, particularly in a slowing market where it becomes more obvious of the cost that you're outlaying. Yeah. And when you think if you can spend $1,000 on social media, as long as you've got your targeting right... You can get huge coverage. Yes, well, we're doing that at the moment with our a campaign that we're running, and yeah, you do get really good reach. Yeah, and you've touched on uh, the female market, and I was curious about your your views on women or females in the property development sector, because I don't. Um, there's not as many. As there are males, and I wondered if you had a view on that. Mm, I definitely do, because um, I've, you know, as part of my role in the property council, I've been running a, a women in property um, series in my region, to, uh, and that's a series of seminars and events that give f 
female developers and and not just developers because as you say there's not not a lot of them but um, professionals who work in the development industry um, to give them an opportunity to get some profile and and um, and be part of speaking panels etc and I find that in the professional sphere of architects planners that kind of thing and even engineers now there's been a, a big growth in the number of women operating in those areas um, which has been fantastic, and project managers as well. But when I consider my definition of what a pro- property developer is, it's it's the person that's out there taking financial risk around a project, um, and you know putting their personal assets and guarantees on the line. And there's not a huge number of those leading larger property development organisations. I think that there is a lot of that hidden in small. Um, firms and they may have been, you know, a carpenter who's become a builder who's now doing townhouse developments and their wife is in there with them 100% risking their family assets and probably doing a lot of the backroom stuff. I call that woman a property developer because she's contributing hugely to the project and, and risking um, risking their finances. So they often are there but they're not the public profile of that development. It's often the husband who's doing that. So um, I think they're out there, but possibly not um, in the larger firms where you know, people have more profile. So that's definitely more, still more male-dominated. Um, but I've got to say, I've found being a female developer, it's a competitive advantage for our business. Um, and it's all about that, um, I guess, the perception and Everyone who's in the development sector knows what that stereotypical developer profile is and it's exacerbated by the media. Um, and I don't think it's necessarily real. There's been certainly been a few aggressive and, and dominant and dodgy developers out there, but um, that's not the bulk of them, but that's what the media focuses on. So for people who are not experienced in development, people who the people I deal with who are, you know, coming in without any experience but are considering allowing us to joint venture with them and, and work on their land. Um, they may have that concern that you know they want to make sure that they're getting in, involved with someone that they can trust. And um, having me there as a female and having more of a kind of I guess perhaps a softer approach and a more collaborative approach, it, it it makes them relax significantly. So I think it's been a big advantage to us to be able to have me as a director and and um, a key driver of the project for the comfort of the people, the um, landowners and investors that are joint venturing with us. Um, so I think a lot of developers could perhaps take that on board and, and realise the that women bring um, a, a very different flavour to the business and different skill set, different style and culture that can really meld well with the male side of the business and, and together make the whole thing stronger. Yeah, I definitely. I definitely think you need a balance of the male and yes. the female input. I believe you'd get it. You do get better results that way. Mm. Yeah, but, you do. Well, it's interesting because I got an email not that long ago from a young female listener who said she was really interested in getting into property development, but she was concerned that she wouldn't be taken seriously, and if she was on site, you know, builders or tradies or whoever it was, or the people that she was dealing with would treat her differently because she was a female. Mm-hmm. And I wrote back to her and said, oh, 
wasn't sure that that would be the reality. I think it depends what you, what you allow to happen. And certainly the people that I deal with are, are quite professional. And I think if I came across people that were behaving that way, I just wouldn't use them. Yeah, it's, it's I a agree. Case, case of screening your the people on your team. Yep, yep, totally agree. And I think that, you know, there's been um, a lot of social research on women in business generally that we tend to undervalue our skills and capability and, and how people um, perceive us. And so often we're holding ourselves back. And so I just say go for it. Um, there's definitely, I'm sure there's all types of tradies out there that, and, and some good ones and some not so respectful ones, but and sometimes you'll come across the ones that are you know, more challenging to deal with or not respectful and you move on from them. But there's some wonderful builders out there who've always been respectful of me and um, I've not really had that issue. So you just have to get out there and put yourself out there and do it and know that you'll encounter some fantastic professionals in the building sector and, and some not so. And <laughs> well, I've, I've, I've had that as well, Jennifer. It's, I don't think yeah. it's uh, just it's, not... the, it's uh, only for women. I've certainly had to deal with some uh, interesting people. Yeah, that's right. It's... And so you know, to that woman who wrote you that email, I just would say get out there, start small and just watch and learn and some some male tradies are very happy to explain everything to you and, you know, you just have to take that opportunity and, and go for it. Yeah, well, there's certainly no special skill that only men have for you to be a property developer. There's no reason why women can't do it or that more women shouldn't get involved. I think it would be great to see more females out there getting into the property development game. That's right. And, you know, that... Um, thing that we talked about before that women tend to be making the decisions um, about purchasing property so therefore as a woman developer you know you would think that there's an advantage there in having that female perspective in working out what you're designing and planning for women to make a decision about so just for all the women out there contemplating getting into development recognize what you have that perhaps maybe even advantage over male developers. There's a lot of it. You know, there's a lot of advantages that you bring. I think there's a massive niche opportunity for female buyers that are, as you say, coming out of relationships at whatever age, but particularly yeah. perhaps a sort of a slightly older demographic that are, as you, as you have experienced, are a bit fearful, have probably doing something on their own and making a big decision I think if they're dealing with someone who understood that or I think they would feel more comfortable dealing with uh, women in that process yep you're absolutely right that's what I've experienced oh very good well what do you think you've learned about yourself along the way Jennifer oh, self-analysis that's always interesting isn't it um, <laughs> I don't know. I've been in the industry a very long time and, you know, everyone would, anyone grows and changes over time and, and as they gain experience. But um, I guess you do learn about yourself. Um, I've recognised that I'm not someone who sticks to convention um, and that can, and I guess that's, that I've recognised that in my father as well, so maybe it's a family trait, but that can feed opportunity and risk. Um, I'm prepared to 
step outside my comfort zone and you know even things like as you as a young person I might not have been as comfortable public speaking or being out there you know putting myself out there but I would push myself and do that thinking well I'll just fake it till I make it and sometimes you fail at that or don't don't feel you've done particularly well but then you know the more you do that the more the better you get at it um so yeah I'm someone who pushes myself um and is prepared to take a bit of a risk which I think is important in property development yes I think you do have to keep pushing yourself yeah and, and I think that probably goes back to that um, the question that we last had about that that young woman who's considering getting into the market. Just push yourself. And what do you reckon the most difficult decision you've had to make is business-wise? Well, yeah, um, that's definitely – those difficult decisions are definitely made around uh, challenging times in the market and the cycle. Um, and, you know, the, the worst period we went through as a, in a business as a business was um, the GFC, um, and I think you know it's it's gone down in history in the property development circles. A lot of people didn't survive, and to, what do you have to do to survive in that circumstance? You have to pull the pin on projects. You have to pull back your overheads, and you have to um, uh, put staff off. And that was the hardest for me is to make finally make the decision that I couldn't carry the overheads. I was carrying um, the projects were being put on ice, and I had to put staff off. And for a, a family business who had staff that had worked with us for quite some time, it, it, they feel like family, um, and go, that was definitely the hardest for me. But I, if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't be here today potentially. So, and that's the same for any business. And I know that banks went through that process; they had to put people off. Heaps, hundreds of people lost their jobs in that in that period. So. Yeah, it, I think for our size business and the fact that it's family business, it feels very personal. Um, and, you know, fortunately those people have, you know, we've still got good relationships with those people and they've gone on to do good, great things. But, yeah, I would say that was the most challenging thing for me to have to sit down with people and do that at that point in time. But what I've learned from it is that is the way that I structure the business and, and keep our overheads low and keep our financial risk lower. Um, and that that's prob- and nowhere near um, this this particular cyclical period we're going through now, now is nowhere near as bad as it was then. But I think that I'm still I, I am reaping the rewards of those those lessons that I learned in the way I've structured the business. In that you know we're much more robust now going through this particular squeeze point in the cycle than we would have been had I not learned those lessons previously. And I wanted to ask about how you continue to learn and. Are there things you do to for inspiration, or do you where you're looking for ideas? Mm. Yeah, I'm always learning, and not just for the benefit of the business, because I just love to, I, I enjoy it. I, I like to learn what's out there and happening, um, not just in my home territory, but out in the wider world um, to see what innovations are happening in the market. And particularly, I'm a bit of a social social watcher, as in um, demographic and social changes. I like to keep it the forefront of those and, and read demographers and um, you know, interesting things on that because I it always ends up feeding back into what product that I'm going to be developing over time and how people, anything about how people live and how societies work and how communities work and, and um, the interaction between populations and, and um, 
you know, particularly small towns, because that's where where um, where we work, how much um, the, the population in a small town that needs to drive the commercial component and um, all of that stuff I'm always very interested in. And so I find that the internet is a wonderful thing and every bit of information you want is out there. And I, I watch very little commercial television, but and I, I don't have a lot of time to read so many books, but I, I see a lot of stuff on the internet and, and you can tailor what you receive through your newsfeed or what you subscribe to. Um, you can tailor it quite well and you can get a lot of learning out and it's free. It's wonderful. And you can just ex- access it at the time that you need or the time you've got available. Um, so that's what I do. I, I find a lot of interesting stuff out there. Um, but I'm also, um, as I mentioned before, it's a bit, always been a big thing in the culture of our family to, to give time back and, um, and contribute skills. So I've, just come off six years as a board member of um, not-for-profit community housing provider. And while I was donating my time or giving my time to that, um, and so it seems like I'm, I'm kind of giving more than receiving, what I found from that is I learned so much from the other board members I was working with who came from a diverse range of backgrounds and had different skill sets to me. Um, and that was so important to me because you know, I work in a very small business with a very small team. Um, and so it's what I was lacking. You kind of, I had to find from outside, which is that interaction with a broader professional team in management. And I found that by donating my time. So that philosophy of um, you get back as much as you give um, was definitely proven to me in that circumstance. And, and I learned so much also about the need of, of um, in social and, and affordable housing and um, the creative ways that not-for-profits are trying to address that need and, and the challenges that they have and, and the government funding that's no longer being provided. Um, and there's now a lot of opportunity, and the government's encouraging this, for uh, collaboration between community housing providers and private developers. And so, once again, all that time I put into the community housing sector as a volunteer, director, um, I'm no longer on that board, but I can, if I want to now, I can take the business in the direction of collaborating with those kind of organisations as a developer. So, yeah, I'm constantly learning and looking for new opportunities and seeing how things are changing. Well, then, and then looking back, if you could go back in time and talk to yourself, when would when would it be and what would you say to, to Jennifer? Mm, I think it would be... Early in my career, and this advice probably applies to anybody stepping into their professional career, and particularly young women, just to back yourself and, and to have more confidence in who you are and what you bring. Um, I think at the time I was probably more. Um, uh, I, I listened a lot to what people older and more experienced, and particularly men, because it was a male-dominated industry, and it still is to some extent. But sometimes I would think I should go in a particular direction or a decision should be made in a particular way and then people would talk me out of it and because of they were more experienced, I would end up deferring to them. But in hindsight, I would my decision would have been better. So you've got to kind of know when to draw on the experience of others and when to think, well, actually, no, despite their experience, what I'm the direction I want to go is actually the correct one. Um, and so not to be talked out of way of things where your gut is telling you to go one way. 
um, because we tend to, as a young person, tend to be less confident in our own um, capabilities. Well, I was anyway. So I would tell myself to stand up and, and follow my gut a bit more, I think, way back then. And so what would you say is your top tip for other developers out there who are looking to take their business to the next level? So I would say concentrate on or focus on the niche markets where you can have a um, uh, perhaps um, a market there that um, others aren't addressing um, and particularly keep an eye on the edge of social change and, and what opportunities that might bring because you you don't really want to be going always head to head with everybody else in the same um, in the same pool and the same market. So that's that's my key um, recommendation. And then focus on your project's financial structure because it's such a big part of risk management for your business. And once you get that right, um, you can just kind of concentrate on the project itself. But yeah, that financial structure is very important. And when you're talking about financial structure, what does that mean, or what does that look like? Um, it's, I think, not um, not making it too loan heavy. Um, just keep your your equity up as much as you can, and that's always that that can be a challenge. But I suppose you manage that by not taking on too ma- too many projects at the same time, if if that's how you need to, um, you know, to reduce your loans. But it's just that you can be the market can turn at the or you, the the example that you gave is where your um, your planning takes longer than expected and suddenly you're in a different market and a different um, uh, the banks have got a different perspective on lending and we've seen that in the last um, six months while the banking royal commission's been on and you know banks change their views on lending very very quickly and suddenly projects that may have been financed weren't able to be financed and you know you're going to um, be less vulnerable to that if you've got a more conservatively geared project. Okay, so, that's definitely yeah. good advice. Mm. All right, well, if people want to find out more about you or about the Fountaindale Group, where can they go? Uh, they can look on our website, which is fountaindale.net.au. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn if anyone wants to connect. Find out me, Find out a little more about me there. Oh, very good. Well... Jennifer Macquarie, I'm really grateful to you for sharing your insights with us on the Property Developer Podcast. No worries. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Yes, thank you. And we'll speak to you soon. Okay. Thanks, Justin. See you, Jennifer. Bye. Okay, there you go. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Jennifer. I certainly did. Here's a couple of things I took away from our conversation. One, understand the gap in the market that your stock is going to fill. Jennifer explained how she's always looking at producing stock that fills a hole in the market. For example, smaller units that may suit regional women coming out of a relationship. If you can find these niches, you should enjoy more success in selling your products and it may help your business to grow and evolve. So keep your eyes and ears open for market feedback about gaps in what is being offered. 2. Boost your marketing budget when the market softens. Having a marketing background has helped Jennifer evolve and adapt to different market conditions. And with the current softening of the markets, she has ramped up her marketing budget. Jennifer mentioned that she is doing a lot of Facebook marketing and finding that females respond far better to her campaigns. So it may be worthwhile bumping up your marketing spend 
but being more targeted in how you approach your audience. Three, be careful about over-leveraging. Jennifer shared her experience of scraping through the GFC and having to let staff go, and how many developers who over-leveraged got caught out. It taught her a lesson to be conservative with the gearing on their projects, and she feels this has served them well. Jennifer also touched on the importance of getting your financial structure right and how much that can help the success of the project. Partnering with landowners has been another way that Jennifer has helped with de-risking projects and keeping the gearing low. So perhaps you could try something similar. Okay, if you enjoyed that chat with Jennifer, then you may enjoy my chat with my old mentor, Troy Harris, in episode 45. Troy and me discuss many things about developing, including some of the myths about being a developer. It's funny, a lot of people will say when the market's hot, oh, gee, it must be a great time to be a developer. It's actually the opposite because while the prices might be moving up on what you're selling, they're moving up extraordinarily on what you're buying. I'm sure you will enjoy Troy's story of going from toy shop owner to successful developer. So jump back to episode 45 for a listen. All right, that's just about it for this episode. Remember to drop a comment in iTunes if you're enjoying the show. If you're feeling fired up and want to take action on learning how to develop property, then email me, justin at propertydeveloperpodcast.com to find out more about the Property Developing Mentoring Program. You can also catch me on Facebook and Instagram for my latest pics, videos, and developing news. I've just added the video walkthrough of my current site, so take a look at that. And for all the past episodes of the show, head to www.propertydeveloperpodcast.com. So until next time, may you find a way to capture the attention of a niche audience. You've been listening to the Property Developer Podcast. Tune in next time for more tips, ideas and inspiration to take your developing to the next level. For more developing love, make sure to visit propertydeveloperpodcast.com.